What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. As always, I am your host, Mike Milner. And today, we've got a nerd out session. Last episode, I hit you with the deep philosophical conversation. So now I have to bring it back to the nerd out sciencey talk that I know so many of you enjoy. And I feel like maybe uh, it's been a little while. I don't know if it's actually been a while, but it feels like it's been a while. So today we're going to go a little bit into the weeds on how your neurotype can tell us whether you should be doing things like intermittent fasting or what you should be eating pre-workout or post-workout or in terms of your meal frequency. This is coming at it from a neurological perspective and it's fascinating When you understand this stuff, it's truly fascinating, not just as a coach who's trying to help other people, but as an individual to understand this about yourself. This was one of the things that really changed my approach. It was like the light bulb moment. It had me thinking about nutrition and training a lot differently when I learned these things, because I always thought there was a way. I thought it was like, okay, we just have to look at research and find what studies tell us about the, you know, the law of averages, right? Like when we have a study with however many people, 300, 500 people, what happens most of the time? And even though studies are a little bit flawed because you're going to have results across the board and they are going to report on averages, I always felt like there was still a way, like (laughs) whatever the averages show us, then that's what we should be doing. And looking at things from a neurological perspective completely changed my approach. That's not to say that there's not value in what studies report. I still look at that very, very frequently. But when you combine that with the understanding of the neurological perspective, and you'll understand what I mean by that shortly, all of a sudden you can make much more informed decisions for yourself rather than doing what and you know the the averages tell you to do or what a group of people are doing you get to find out and figure out the best approach for yourself and it's really cool when you when somebody says you know oh i do intermittent fasting rather than just blindly following that person's advice you can look at this from a neurological perspective when you understand your neurotype and you can make a more informed decision about whether that might be the best approach for you or not So that's everything that we're going to cover in this episode today. And if you enjoy it, if you'd like the nerd out session, let me know. I would love to hear about it. You can certainly leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's always, always appreciated. You can take a screenshot of this episode, then post it to your stories on Instagram and hit me with a tag at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. And of course, you could just send the episode to a friend, family member. If you're a coach, send it to fellow coaches who should be listening to this, who should probably enroll in the neurotype certification. Spoiler alert, coaches, if you are not enrolled, if you're not certified in neurotyping, you are leaving a lot of results on the table. Just going to tell you that right now. So, probably hit me up and ask, how do I get enrolled in the neurotyping cert? And of course, I will hook you up. Anyway, without any more delay, let's get into it. Enjoy the episode. All right, guys. So today's topic for 
you guys on this beautiful and chilly Monday evening in the Northeast. Um, I wanted to talk about, I made the title fasting for your neurotype. If you're in the Facebook group, you're probably like, oh, I'm going to learn whether I should fast based off of my neurotype, which is part of it. I couldn't think of a more creative topic that was more um, all-inclusive about understanding your neurological state and how we can actually make nutritional decisions and really training and lifestyle decisions as well, based off of what we're trying to achieve neurologically. And to set the foundation for this understanding, it's important to, to remember that your neurotype or your personality type gives us insight into your neurotransmitter balance. The reason why we have to look at personality characteristics to determine your neurotransmitter balance is because there's no other efficient way to know what's going on with your neurotransmitter systems. In other words, if I were to take a blood test and I were to get a, uh, you know, I would get my results and it would tell me, okay, you have, you know, this amount of dopamine, this amount of acetylcholine, this amount of serotonin, right? It would give me a bunch of levels, but it doesn't tell me anything other than my levels at that snapshot in time, which if I was really stressed would look very different than if I was really relaxed or if I had trained really intensely, it would look differently. Or if I was fasted versus fed, all of these things influence your neurotransmitter levels. So it's really ineffective to just look at a snapshot in time. What it also doesn't tell us is the effectiveness of the system as a whole. So I could look at some, some blood work and I can see my neurotransmitter levels, but what if that neurotransmitter, let's just say, um, let's just use dopamine as an example. What if I have high levels of dopamine, but my dopamine receptors are desensitized and I'm not my, the dopamine, the dopaminergic system is not working efficiently because of the receptors. A blood test is not going to show you that. And I'm only telling you this because a lot of people wonder why we look at personality. Why do we care about your neurotype? And that's, that's a big part of it. Your personality, your personality characteristics, your personality type tells us and gives us insight into the neurotransmitter systems as a whole. It is the most effective way to date. As of now, maybe there will be a more effective technology that comes out in the future, but as of right now, the most effective way to gain insight into your neurotransmitter systems as a whole, your neurotransmitter balance, is through your personality types. That is why we utilize the personality assessment. That's why we utilize neurotyping when we're working with clients. That's why we utilize neurotyping when we do our challenges. By the way, a little, uh, little preview, next challenge is coming very soon. So there's going to be some announcements coming. It's January 10th. Should start planning. It's coming soon. It's totally free, by the way. Not like, oh, it's free, but then you have to pay something later. It's just free. You join, you get the challenge. That's it. There's no um, upgrade to like group coaching or anything like uh, we used to do a group option or the last challenge we did a group option. We have our regular coaching, which is, in my opinion, the most effective strategy to reach your goals and stay there one-on-one -on -one being the ideal way of doing that. Uh, we also have a group coaching option that starts in the new year. You can lock that in now. 
and get started January 3rd with our group coaching. But the challenge itself is totally free. If you want to just go through the challenge, you join the challenge and you go through it totally free. You get your nutrition plan, you get your training plan, you get all of the mini challenges throughout the challenge, um, some of the mindset stuff, the lifestyle stuff, it's all included. There is zero cost for that. So just stay tuned. Um, it starts January 10th and you're going to want to get enrolled into that. Anyway, so that's why you know understanding your personality type is so important because we have to, you know, we want insight into your neurotransmitter balance. And this whole conversation is about what do we do with that information, right? So I want to look at this from a neurological perspective. And because I started the, I I made the title fasting for your neurotype, I'm going to use that as our first example. So most people look at fasting as maybe a way to cut calories, right? If I condense my feeding window to a shorter period of time, then it might be easier to eat less. That's typically why most people do it. Or they listen to some like pseudoscientist who's like, well, fasting is great for cellular autophagy and it helps you, you know, with your digestive system. And they'll, they'll start to extrapolate kind of bullshit science. They'll take a sliver of truth and extrapolate it into these gross generalizations about fasting to promote it. And then other people will be like, oh, well, that sounds like it's true. So I'm going to start fasting. Um, And it's really not the case. Um, Always keep in mind, like when you hear something, if you immediately just draw conclusions, like a linear conclusion, like, oh, fasting is healthier. So I should fast. Um, you should always challenge that through personal experience and anecdote. Don't just like immediately draw that linear conclusion. Actually sit with it and then try to find evidence to the contrary. Do I know healthy people that don't fast? Do it like start to question the validity of it. Um, and I that goes for everything that I say. Nobody, nobody should just listen to whatever I say and accept it as instant truth. Um, I like to challenge my own thoughts. I like to challenge my own beliefs. I've come full circle on certain things that I used to believe were not valid that I've come around on. So I've talked about that on the show. We should always be challenging our own beliefs. We should always be challenging everything that we hear. I actually had somebody today who responded to uh, one of my emails and basically was like, I don't agree with your philosophies. And I was like, great. That is the perfect reason to remove yourself from my email list and from the group. And that is totally respectable. Like, nope, you don't have to just blindly believe what I'm saying. Um, So typically somebody will start fasting because they just blindly believe that it's healthier because they heard it somewhere or because they want to condense their feeding window to eat less. That's, that's usually why it comes. It's, it's pretty popular. And for a lot of people, They do eat less when they fast for the most part. Um, That doesn't make it just because the outcome is what you expected. That doesn't make the process the right thing to do. So that's where looking at it from a neurological perspective is important because some people don't connect the dots that they're actually over consuming because they're fasting. So even though there's some like you can you can safely say 
all right, well, if I have less time to eat, in theory, I should eat less, right? There's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that statement, except when you start to challenge things and you're like, does this hold up in the real world? Does this hold up for me in real life? A lot of times you're like, well, actually, I find myself binging at night. I find myself overindulging on the weekends. I find myself snacking. I find myself really feeling like ravenously hungry uh, when I get home from work, like you start to pile up evidence to the contrary, like, okay, well, maybe eating in a smaller window is not actually helping me eat less. And then let's take it back one step. Is eating less really the outcome that we desire? We might think it is, but is that actually what we want? Is that going to move us forward for our goals? Haven't we been trying to eat less for many, many years unsuccessfully? So maybe at the, the fundamental level, it's not the, the proper approach. But the way that I like to look at it is, first of all, does this help you stay consistent? That's the first thing. Does fasting actually help you stay consistent? Or is it something that you're just doing because you think it's the right thing to do? And then the neurological perspective is, let's think about what happens in your brain when you fast. So without nutrients, without energy coming in, we know that your body is under stress, right? We know that that is a stressor on your system. Um, now, it's not necessarily a major stress. However, if you go you know, longer periods, right? The longer that you are without food and energy, the more of a stress that it is, it becomes. So initially, it might not feel like, like a stressor, but if you are fasting for, you start out with like 10 hours and then 12 and then 16 and then 20, the stress increases. If you are already a stressed out person, it might not seem like a big deal, but if you're adding stress on top of stress on top of stress, then maybe it is a big deal. But let's look at what happens neurologically because it's a stressor. We know that adrenaline and cortisol increase while you're fasted. It makes sense, right? Because if you have no energy coming in, but you need energy to function on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, we need to mobilize stored energy because we don't have energy coming in. Cortisol's responsibility is to mobilize stored energy. Adrenaline helps to increase. Typically, they're, they're going to be um, elevated at the same time because adrenaline is the stress neuro, neurotransmitter. It helps increase focus and blood flow and concentration. Because if you're under stress, your body just wants to survive. So you're going to see an increase in all of the um, catecholamines, cortisol, adrenaline. The conversion of noradrenaline to adrenaline happens with cortisol and some other enzymes. But we know that adrenaline is going to be increased. Cortisol is going to be increased. But let's look downstream a little bit, or excuse me, let's look upstream a little bit. What has to be increased first to get adrenaline increased? Well, I mentioned noradrenaline. But even before that, we have dopamine. So dopamine, um, adrenaline is fabricated downstream from dopamine. So dopamine converting to noradrenaline, then noradrenaline to adrenaline. So if you think about it, an individual who is already really stressed out, already a high-stress individual, increasing dopamine, increasing noradrenaline, increasing adrenaline, increasing cortisol probably not the best idea. So for that person, fasting from a neurological perspective, I'm not even talking about 
what their nutritional habits are. I'm talking about mentally, how they'll feel neurologically. It's probably not the best approach because again, we're adding stress on top of stress. If somebody's, and it's funny because typically the people that fast are like the, the go-getter type A personalities. Like I can be more extreme. I can do more. I can fast longer. It's almost like a, you know, a badge of honor. It's like, well, that 16 hour fast was nothing. I can fast for 24 hours or 48 hours. Right. And you're taking somebody who's already a little bit higher strung, who probably needs more recovery in their life. They probably have elevated cortisol, elevated adrenaline, and you're taking that person and you're adding more stress. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So if you think about it from a neurological perspective, individuals who are naturally more anxious, who are naturally more, um, more of a high stress individual, somebody who needs more recovery, fasting does not make a lot of sense. But who would it be good for neurologically? Well, let's look at it. If you have somebody who maybe is a little bit uh, lacking in motivation, we'll say, somebody who might come across as a little bit lazy, like they don't have it in them to get up and go to the gym and they're, they're struggling, um, maybe that person would benefit from fasting because of the increase in dopamine, pleasure response, increase in adrenaline, right? More confidence, more perceived confidence, uh, mobilizing stored energy, getting them ready to go. So maybe for the couch potato or somebody who's just lacking in motivation, neurologically, that might be a tool in your toolbox to pull out when you need it. If you're ever struggling, like, I don't really feel like doing this. Well, guess what? Dopamine is one of the best things to get you feeling like doing something. When your body responds to your, your dopamine production, when your dopamine receptors are sensitive or you have higher levels of dopamine, you're going to feel like doing stuff. And if you don't believe me, just do yourself a favor and take uh, like two grams of L-tyrosine in the morning and watch how you get shit done. You'll notice a difference. You'll feel a difference. And that's because L-tyrosine is, made, is um, then fabricated into dopamine. Um, so we've got L-dopa, we've got L-tyrosine, dopamine. You'll see that conversion happen and you'll feel like doing stuff. It will, quote unquote, motivate you. All of a sudden, you'll be ready to get shit done. So the person that is maybe more of a couch potato maybe lacking motivation, might benefit from fasting. But this is why looking at it from a neurological perspective is so important because so many people get caught up in the actual food part of it. Like, am I, like can I eat less if I do this? And, and again, that might not even be necessary for you. Like eating less might be what you think needs to happen, but that might not really be the solution for you. So what if we just thought about this first and foremost from a neurological perspective? Does this make sense based off of your personality type? I think that's a more productive first step than just immediately jumping to the nutrition side of things. Now, fasting is not the only area where we can look at this, like even something like pre-workout. Okay. So pre-workout, a lot of people just assume, well, I need energy pre-workout. So I'm just going to immediately jump to protein and carbs. 
Um, I've, I've seen a number of different programs where it was just standardized. Like everybody should have protein and carbs pre-workout because you need energy. And especially if you're lifting weights, you're going to be relying heavily on, um, you know, glycogen. So we need to get carbs in and everybody should be having the same pre-workout meal, whatever. And it doesn't make sense because we're all wired differently. So again, we can look at this from a neurological perspective. If I have somebody who is um, more parasympathetic, right? They're more in that rest and digest mode and we need to amp them up to train. Well, what's going to happen if we have a lot of carbs pre-workout? Well, carbs will increase serotonin. Serotonin slows down the brain. Okay. It's an inhibitor. We have neurotransmitters that amplify brain activity, right? And there is this optimal level of brain activity that we want to perform too much brain activity, right? If your neurons are firing too fast, that's a bad thing. You'll get paralysis by analysis. You'll overthink. Um, you'll, you'll react too quickly. If your brain activity is too slow, you won't be motivated. You'll come across as lazy. You won't have the energy. Um, you won't feel like training. So there's this optimal level that we're trying to achieve. So if I have somebody who is in more of that rest and digest mode, more in that parasympathetic state, and I give them a bunch of carbs pre-workout, that's going to drive them further into that parasympathetic state because it's going to carbs increase serotonin, increase insulin, which is the shutoff valve for cortisol. So right, we're not mobilizing stored energy right then and there. And we're driving further into that parasympathetic state. We won't feel like training. That individual will not feel like working out. Now, over time, they can get themselves into the zone. Like you can take somebody who's deep into that parasympathetic state, get them into the gym, and eventually dopamine levels will surpass serotonin. And then all of a sudden they'll feel a lot better. Like they'll, it's like, if you've ever gone to the gym and you just didn't feel like you had it, it was just one of those days where you just didn't have it. Like you were, you were trying, you were there, you knew you had to show up, but you just didn't have it. And then all of a sudden you realize like, oh shit, I just, I just felt like it was like one rep, one set. And you're like, there it is. Like, where was that? My entire session. It's because your dopamine levels were lower than serotonin and then dopamine surpassed serotonin. And all of a sudden you felt a lot better. So it can happen in the middle of the workout, but now you've wasted half a session by not feeling like being there. So as much as we can avoid that, and we have this information at our disposal, why not use it? So thinking about it from a neurological state, if I am already feeling a little bit lethargic and lazy, eating a bunch of carbs pre-workout doesn't make sense. So I can do protein and fats, and now I'm going to increase L-tyrosine dopamine and now that's going to help me amplify brain activity to get into the optimal zone to be able to train. Now, on the flip side of that, if you have an individual who is very amped up, right, they're ready to go, higher stress, higher anxiety, well, that person would benefit from carbs pre-workout because we want to slow down brain activity to get them into that optimal zone. So it's very simple. The person who is overly amped we want to calm the brain down. For the person who is overly calm, we want to speed up the brain activity. We want to amp the brain up. That's how we get somebody into the, to the optimal zone to perform. 
Now, of course, you need energy for your session. So the theory of intense workouts, heavy lifting, requiring more carbohydrate is accurate. But keep in mind, if you are fueling properly on a day-to-day basis, you have plenty or you should have plenty in your system to pull from. And we're not just pulling immediately from the pre-workout meal. We're pulling from the last 24 to 48 hours. So again, it's not what you do in that moment that matters from an energy availability standpoint. It matters what you do in that moment from a neurological standpoint. And then the fuel that we're utilizing, we're pulling from the last one to two days. So that's where your overall nutrition is so much more important than kind of the the minutia, which a lot of people get caught up in. A lot of people think um, they have to worry so much about uh, the specific contents of, of each individual meal, when in reality, it's the big picture. It's the overall plan that's most important. So from a high, like a top-down approach, we look at neurologically what makes sense overall. When we're working with our clients, when we work in our, our one-on-one program with our clients and we implement neurotyping, we start at the top. Like, What's the overarching plan structure that makes sense for this person? Personality-wise, number one, metabolically, and then lifestyle. Like, what do they enjoy doing? What are the things that that they, you know, they're non-negotiables, date nights, vacations, holidays, all of that. So that's where we start. Like, what makes the most sense for this person as the, the overarching theme of the plan, like how it's structured in general based on their neurotype metabolism lifestyle. And then we get down into more of the, the finer details of things like fasting, um, meal frequency, pre and post workout, before bed, any time we want to manipulate, and manipulate is kind of a bad word, but like optimize is better. Anytime we want to optimize neurological state for our clients, that's what we look at. So pre, post workout, I already covered pre workout, post workout. Well, what's the objective there neurologically? We want to shut down that brain activity. We want the recovery process to start. It's not that we're trying to maximize gains in this window of opportunity, which is, again, this is an example of taking a small sliver of science and blowing it out of proportion. Yes, you do have a, an amplified metabolism post-workout, but studies show that it does not have that much of an effect that what you do overall, surprise, surprise, the law of averages always wins in this case. What you do overall is more important than what you do in that post-workout meal. So it's not like if you don't get carbs in, you're missing out on all of these gains. It's more about your total nutrition on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis when it comes to recovery, building muscle, that sort of thing. However, you do have this amplified brain activity that it helps to shut off because your muscles recover very quickly. Your nervous system does not. So we want to assist your nervous system by shifting into that parasympathetic state, which is why carbohydrates post-workout makes a lot of sense. That's where we get that insulin release. We shut off the cortisol response. We increase serotonin. We slow down brain activity. We get into that parasympathetic state. So that that's where it makes more sense um, for most people to have carbs post-workout. Pre-workout would be dependent on the individual. And then the same thought process before bed. If I'm trying to slow down brain activity, well, it makes a lot of sense to have some carbs before bed. 
that's going to, again, increase serotonin, calm the brain down, um, get you into that rest and digest mode, help you sleep. Sleep is important. Recovery is important. These are the things that we look at. And then from a stress management standpoint, you can just look at that across the board. Like, are you a high stress individual? The more stress that you have, the more we need to assist the nervous system in calming down, right? That's just basics. If you're a high stress individual, the more things that we do to increase stress, to increase adrenaline, cortisol, the more of a negative impact that's going to have on your metabolism, on your results, on your ability to stay consistent. So we have these tools in our toolbox. It's just a matter of utilizing them. And that's why, and we're not just looking at this from a nutrition standpoint. We're also looking at this from a lifestyle standpoint, from a training standpoint. All of it works synergistically. In other words, if I wanted to calm the nervous system down, it wouldn't just be carbs are my only option. I can go for a walk. I can read. I can um, meditate. I can journal. There's, there's things that I can do. I can listen to music, look, whatever calming activity. I can do some breathing exercises, whatever it may be. It's not just nutrition that plays a role. It's all things together. That's why sometimes I think it's interesting where people are like, well, I don't need help with anything else. I just need help with this one thing. Like, I'll get that sometimes. Like, I, I just need help with this one thing. I don't need any of the mindset stuff. I don't need any of this other stuff, lifestyle. I just need you to tell me my macros. I'm like, you're missing the point because it, you can't isolate. Your body is not able to isolate certain components and just be like, okay, well, because we got this macro plan, everything else is just going to fall into place. They Everything influences everything in the body. It's like this symphony that's all playing together. You can't just say like, well, teach me the, the guitar notes and I'm going to ignore the, the drummer and I don't know, the you know piano player and all this other stuff. Like it all works together. You can't isolate. So that's why we look at all the, the, all the levers that we can pull and what makes the most sense for that person. But I think sometimes it helps to understand the neurological approach when it comes to things like meal timing, meal frequency, like meal frequency. If I'm spacing out my meals, then I'm going to increase adrenaline and cortisol. Same kind of impact as fasting. The further apart my meals are, the more that response is going to happen. Now, for some people that can be a benefit. For others, it can be a detriment. It depends on you as an individual. Again, why do we start with neurotyping? This is why we start there because it gives us the overarching theme of the plan for every single client that we work with. And then we can break it down into more of the finer details. And the perfect test is the real life test. Like, how is this working in real life for this individual? Now we have the real life test, and then we can just make those micro adjustments along the way until we find the perfect fit. Because it's not as simple as saying, well, this person is a 2A, so we're going to plug and play this way of doing things. No, we understand what that looks like for a 2A neurologically. So we're going to put our best foot forward. Then we're going to test it in real life. How does this work with this individual schedule and lifestyle and personal life and family life? And how is their body responding? Now we have the real life test and we can accommodate, we can adjust from there to see what's holding up what's falling flat. And therefore we know exactly what needs to be adjusted. And it just removes a lot of the guessing game. Most people play this guessing game 
like I said, they hear some sliver of information like, oh, well, so-and-so did fasting and they lost a lot of weight, so I should fast. And, and just because the outcome was what the same outcome that you want doesn't mean the process to get there was effective or even uh, what you should be trying because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know the full story. That person might be neurologically set up to do that, or they might have gotten a temporary result and they're not going to sustain it. You don't know. But we, we leap to these conclusions. We try to draw this linear path and saying like, okay, this happened. So it must have been because of this. And we draw that conclusion without actually challenging it or using personal experience to at least try and test this theory out. Like, have I tried this before? Does it make sense? Is there any logic or evidence to the contrary? That's kind of the thought process we should be having. So hopefully this makes sense when you're trying to consider your own, um, you know, your own way of doing things. If you're trying to figure things out for yourself, I would highly recommend starting with the neurotype assessment, get an idea of what that looks like for you. So you can go to neurotypetraining.com, take the assessment. It's free. You'll get a whole, um, you know, you'll get your, your scores back. If you don't see your scores immediately, like within 30 minutes, you should check your spam folder. And if you don't see it in your spam folder, then you should reach out to us um, because something may have happened on the, uh, I don't know, on the email delivery I never know what happens when it comes to technology, but some things happen. And uh, typically it's because the results went to spam or sometimes um, it can happen where somebody unsubscribes from my email list and then they try and put in the assessment, but because they blocked emails from me, I don't know, you know, people don't like my blunt cursing ways. So sometimes they unsubscribe and then they're like, wait, I want to take that assessment. And they take the assessment, but the email gets blocked because they unsubscribe anyway. There's always some, some strange stuff that happens, but um, start with your assessment and take a look at every neurotype. So when you get your results back, read through the PDF that you get and see if any of the other neurotypes resonate with you more, because there's still a margin of error in the assessment. And you might find that when you read through the results, that there's another personality type that, that more um, deeply defines you, or you feel like it defines you more than the one that the assessment gave you, which happens from time to time. So it's important to read through everything. And the most ideal, again, optimal, if we're talking about the most efficient path forward, hire a coach, join our one-on-one coaching program. Um, there is nothing like it when it comes to being able to guarantee your results. If you want results, if you want to keep your results, if you want to guarantee your results, one-on-one coaching is the way to do that. And as a reminder, it's signing week, which means that this is the week where, you know, like signing day in, in college sports where the, the athletes have to commit. This is where they sign their letter of intent. Like, this is what I'm doing. I'm signing this letter of intent. So I'm calling this signing week because our rates are going up. Once the calendar hits 2022, our one-on-one coaching program is going up. So it's, it's, do or die week. You're either going to take advantage of an opportunity or you're going to pass on an opportunity. Then you're going to come back to the opportunity when it's more expensive. So it's always a choice. It's your call, but this is signing week. And we're going to throw in some bonuses this week just to make it a little bit fun because there's always a signing bonus of some, some, I don't, I guess not in college sports. Um, although they, they say there's not a signing bonus, but we know what really happens behind the scenes. Uh, but typically 
like in, in professional sports, there's always some kind of a signing bonus. So we're going to throw in little signing bonuses. One of the bonuses as a little uh, hint is going to be something training related, where we are going to add an additional training resource for you guys who make the decision. And of course, if you're already in, you get everything anyway. So anytime we make an upgrade or do something new, um, you get access to it if you're already a client. But for anybody who who uh, makes the leap, takes the leap, signs their letter of intent with Pop, um, you're going to get some exclusive bonuses this week. And then once once the calendar moves to 2022, everybody who missed out, I feel badly for you. Um, I know that you'll come around because typically what happens is they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can afford it. It's expensive. Yes, we are not the cheapest option. That's by design. And it should be that way when you deliver results like we do. Um, but eventually they'll realize like, wow, I've been wasting a lot of time and money when I should have just invested and I wouldn't have had to spend any more money. It would actually create a return on my investment. And then they'll come back and then it'll be more expensive. And I'll be like, I told you so. And I actually won't say I told you so. I will be very compassionate and graceful as always. If you've had a phone conversation with me, hopefully you can attest to that. But uh, that's all I've got for you guys today. Hopefully this was helpful and gives you a little bit of an insight into our thought process when we're working with clients, but also how you can utilize this for yourself. Because like I said, when I learned this, it changed everything for me personally and my approach. Um, I stopped just following things blindly and I started analyzing. I started thinking like, does this actually make sense for me? Is there anything to the contrary that I can pull from, from past experience? Or does this hold up to the real life test? So that's the main objective here. If you can walk away with at least that takeaway, then I've done my job. Hopefully this was helpful and I will talk to you guys very soon.